Hey guys, this is Anand Shippy from AnandTech.com. We are back. Uh, this is a doubleheader sort of deal. Um, yesterday we had uh, the Haswell podcast, episode 22, go live. Today, episode 23, we're back with Brian Klug, our senior smartphone editor, um, to talk about all things smartphone that have been going on. Hey guys. Um, so you've been flying all over the place. Uh, you just yeah. got back from, uh, you visited Nokia, right? And you got to play with the Lumia 1020? Yeah, last week was the, uh, the Lumia like Zoom reinvented event. Uh, in New York, which was pretty cool. We got to see the 1020. Um, <clears throat> so if you're not familiar, that's their uh, 41 megapixel smartphone that runs Windows Phone 8. It's a GDR2 device. Uh, and essentially it's like the 808, but better and shoved into like a Lumia 920 chassis and running Windows Phone. So, I mean, we that's the device everybody's been talking about for such a long time now. And... Uh, yeah, they had a big event for just one phone, you know, like that was a pretty big venue, you know, a lot of discussion, a lot of cool demos and um, obviously an excellent imaging device. Just the question of, you know, how does this fit into the market? You know, wh- what does it look like to the consumer? And, and of course, it's AT&T exclusive. So, yeah, that's that's kind of interesting because that's a, that it really is a huge event for you know, a single device, which is funny when you say that, right? Because that's that's effectively what Apple does. Although these days they do, you know, a whole bunch of stuff now with all the announcements. Sure. Um, but, you know, this isn't the, this is a flagship device for Nokia, but it's not necessarily, you know, the only device that matters in the world, right? Which is what makes right. this a little unusual. Do you, do you believe that this changes the Windows Phone 8 story at all? No, I mean, to be honest, I like, I don't know. I tweeted that I, I, I thought it, I can't even form the sentence. (laughs) I thought it should have been the Lumia 1080 and then it's 1080p. It's a GDR3 phone. And then you have MSM 8974 and you know, the number works better that way. And it was originally supposed to be the 909, like in about the phones that the, uh, that they were showing off still said Nokia 909. Yeah. And, so and I I, guess, it doesn't fundamentally change Windows Phone, in my opinion. Like yeah. it's, I don't know. It's more like I said. It's more usable than Symbian. You know, essentially the 808 was like a connected camera. I know there are Symbian fanboys out there, and like Symbian was sort of the smartphone platform before it was like mainstream to have a smartphone. But the fact of the matter is, it's it just doesn't really abide by the same paradigms that any anything else this decade does. <laughs> so. As a result, it feels out of place, and it was always kind of a questionable questionable device. And now I feel like the 1020 is, you know, it's excellent from an imaging standpoint, but it's going to be against all these GDR3 phones that are coming right around the corner. They're going to have better silicon, going to have 1080p, you know, going to have all these, like, cool, sexier features. Um, and why do you think, micro, like, this has been a constant refrain with Windows Phone, right? Except for when it, I mean, even actually going back to when it launched, right? Why is it that Microsoft always seems to be one or more steps behind where everyone is on the Android and iOS side? You know, I don't, I don't know. Like, so when Windows Phone launched, it was supposed to be like there were going to be all these staccato updates. I remember being told, literally direct quote, that it would be like machine gun fire. <laughs> and um, which is just hilarious in retrospect because it's been anything but. Yeah. And so as a result, you know, like the expectations were were set such that, you know, like this is the first iteration of this platform. But it, it basically sat there for a full year, you know, and then we got copy paste and then, you know, the mango update and all this other stuff. And then 
came Windows Phone 8, which kind of like rebooted everything, but didn't really change a lot of the paradigms. Yeah. And so I think I think the the you know we've discussed this before. It ends up being just because in the Windows ecosystem, the phone is sort of an accessory to the desktop. And I ran this experiment with one of my friends. Um, I dared him. This sounds horrible too. Like I don't hate Windows Phone, but you know it's just a worthy experiment. He's an iPhone user. Um, used to be a long-time Android user, had all the Motorola droids. And um, I said, you know, like, I bet you can't last a week with a Windows phone. So I took his SIM card out. Um, and the bet was, like, if you can use this as your phone, like, I'll buy you dinner or something. And if not, then you owe me, like, 40 bucks. <laughs> so um, so I took the SIM card out of his iPhone. I stuck it in, like, a, a Windows Phone 8 device. I won't name who. And uh, was like, this is what you're going to use for the week. And... You know, he survived. I think he used the phone less. Uh, he started using the iPhone as like an iPod Touch kind of alongside of it. But really what stuck out was um, that he said that during his time using it, it made him use the PC more. Like if, you were, if he was in his house and he wanted to Google something, instead of doing it on his phone, he'd just go to his PC. Or, you know, if you were out and about, he would just whip out his laptop. So, I mean, really saying that, it sort of made it all click to me because that's sort of what I've had happen too. Like That's there's so huge. much there's so much friction that I literally don't want to use my phone anymore. And I, it drives me to the desktop. And I at first I thought that was sort of like a side effect. But now I believe that's actually exactly what they're going for. And the result is what, you know, you see what you what you get out of it. So that's that's my like high level view of what you know where Windows phone fits in. And you remember they even had that in their messaging for a while. They had it, you know, like, stop pulling your phone out so often. Yeah. Only do it to glance at it. So, like, it all sort of clicked. And it took two years and sort of constantly wondering why it was always behind. But then it made sense. And, so you, you know, think, we're going to see an Microsoft update here. at some point might be worried about cannibalization? Something like that. Yeah, I'm sure. Well, it's part of an accessory. Like, your your big thing, which makes a lot of sense, is that... You know, you see these mobile strategies sort of trying to reflect what what they want out of the market, yeah. you know, in the grand scheme. So, like, Apple, they have two computing platforms. You know, one's iOS, one's OS X. Um, Which is what's Andro- funny about the, the Apple one is iOS is really Apple's solution to the netbook problem, right? It's Apple's solution yeah. to we can't build, we don't want to build really cheap computers, but we have to compete with cheap PCs. So let's start from scratch right. and do something that, that works there. And it does. Whereas if you had looked at it the other way and if Apple had said, hey, we're going to start shipping OS ten on a bunch of dual-core Cortex-A9 based devices, like that would have never worked. Right. And then if you look at Google, they don't have really a computing platform. Yeah. They have Android, which is sort of like the be-all, end-all Google OS. And then you have Chrome OS, which I've said before is no, a solution to nobody's problem. And we'll just like discount it for right now because I don't know what it is. I don't think they know what it is yet. And <laughs> then so, you have windows, right? Um, and windows has like windows and then they have this phone thing and it's like, well, okay. You know, the phone is kind of an also ran. That's my theory. At least yeah, I could be wrong. It's true. I, I feel like I'm, I'm still not seeing, you know, if you rewind back like four or five years ago, uh, there were a lot of folks in the industry that were kind of quietly saying that, Hey, you know, 
all these smart people within our companies do these models and they say that all mainstream PCs become smartphones at some point in the future, either 10 years, you know, at the time, either 10 years from now or 20 years, but all of the models show that that's what happens. And like the transformer. Yeah. I mean the, um, the, the phone, the pad phone. I'm exactly. Sorry. But, but now I'm actually wondering if that's actually what happens, right? Like I, I look at how successful the tablet has been and, and all of these models were done before, you know, the, the ARM-based tablet became a successful thing. And now I'm not necessarily sure that mainstream computing all goes to phones. Um, I, I think the tablet throws a wrench in, in that whole vision. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying that it doesn't all go to phones, but I'm not totally sold on that being the end-all be-all. I'm not, I'm not sold on it either because the phone is going to have to run this, like, dual-use paradigm OS thing that sort of works really well at five inches, you know, or four, four and some, four and change, and then also works great at, like, ten and above. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, like I've said before, I don't fundamentally believe that's possible. Maybe, I mean, it is, but that's sort of like an edge case that takes a lot of work. And the rest of it is very hard to do right. And you see that even with Windows 8, you know, to try to nail desktop and tablet to say nothing of phone is already a struggle. Yeah. So, now, and, you so, know, like it is separate. They've even kept that separate, right? So I don't know. So to, uh, there, there are a couple of points that I want to talk about. The, the, none of this is on, on the script, but this is good. I, I want to <laughs> talk about um, Windows 8 and, and why I think that has like, horribly failed so far. And, and I don't think it's... Um, so Windows 8.1, like I've played with it a little bit. Um, it kind of addresses DPI scaling finally, which is something they needed at launch, which they didn't have. Um, it, it's still not. I, I, again, I, I, I've been wanting to write this up, but I haven't played enough. Played with it enough. Um, I feel like the OS X implementation is still like a little cleaner, um, mm-hmm. but that's something that they lacked at launch. The other problem at launch is Windows 8 launched on hardware that just wasn't ready, right? It launched on Tegra yeah. 3 and in, in the tablet sense, right? It launched on right. Tegra 3, which was too slow. Um, and wasn't really good from a power usage standpoint. And no Shadow Core. Exactly, yeah, no Shadow Core. <laughs> it launched on, like, really old Qualcomm hardware. Um, and it launched on Clover... Yeah, like tri- EPQ8060 at, at launch, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Like, I still, I can't get... I was talking to someone at Qualcomm recently about this. I was like, look, one of the reasons you can come to different conclusions about Intel versus Qualcomm is because if you evaluate the two in Windows... Intel clearly wins because there is no crate 300 or above on Windows today. But if you do it in Android, Intel loses because you have modern Qualcomm and ARM derivative cores. Um, right. And so, like, you know, I think maybe Microsoft just doesn't move fast enough. Like, that's an overriding theme is that every all these other players are moving so fast, and it's not like Microsoft gets silicon later. They just they're just sitting on it longer. Like this platform is sitting around doing nothing. That's true, you know? but so then that at least gets somewhat addressed with Snapdragon 800, right? Because one of the flagship launch platforms is supposed to be Surface RT 2 8.1, whatever the hell you want to call it, but like that. Um, and that should well, the, be... Yeah, the GDR3 phones kind of catch up. Yeah. But then it's going to fall back behind again, like they're just going to sit on it forever. So you, you think they won't... This isn't the beginning of their cadence. This is just them, like, magically... I, I just don't buy it anymore. Yeah, like, that's always the promise. Like, oh, we're going to fix it this time. We're going to be faster now. Yeah. You know, like, it's been three times now that I've just sort of been <laughs> lied to. But know, see, I'm just like really skeptical in now. The past, like, if it happens, that's great. But if it doesn't, I'm just not going to be surprised. So I feel like in the past... 
they would always show up with inferior specs, right? They would show up to the party clearly late already and clearly with older everything. I feel like this year they will show up with um, at least competitive hardware. And I'm assuming that uh, because Windows 8.1 has, you know, proper DPI scaling for high DPI displays, that we might get some other good specs out of them too, right? Like, so we won't just be talking about low-res panels. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know. And I'm I'm always the eternal optimist, and, like, maybe I... <laughs> right? Like, it's, I've become a real pessimist in this... Um... In this job so far. Yeah, I mean, but it's like, it's important to have both perspectives, right? Um, I'm just very skeptical, especially when it involves Windows Phone. And a lot of people misinterpret my skepticism as being like a fanboy of other platforms, which is weird because you can't, you can't be a fanboy for everything but one thing, you know? (laughs) And if you go back, like some of our initial involvement was with Windows Phone. Like I remember sitting there and I was a Windows Mobile user before and it's, it's kind of like they abandoned that enthusiast crowd, and that enthusiast crowd abandoned them as well. Yes. And everybody who was cooking ROMs and hacking on that platform just does the same thing for Android now. Yep. And you know what? That is one of the problems. Like, somebody said, oh, you just don't like it because you can't hack it. I was like, yeah, that's one of the problems. Just deal with it. And to say nothing of, you, like, I would love to use it just not being able to do anything, that's called iOS, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> and but I can't even do that. Yeah. Right. So that argument falls flat on its face. And that was supposed to be the original promise of Windows Phone, right? You get all the benefits of iOS with some of the flexibility of Android. And I thought that was a unique proposition. Like I, that was interesting right. to me. Um, which is, you know, give me something that's not a full blown computing device, but could be more of one if I wanted it to. Right. And it's not going to be as shackled and and, uh, as as iOS is, but still give me that appliance like experience of iOS. And instead, what we seem to have gotten is a worse appliance feature phone plus plus. That's what it is. So I I don't know. I I still have uh, I believe in the idea that Microsoft could unify all of its platforms. Right. That we could have, uh, you know, common hardware that runs. Hey, just pick your VM what you want to run on it. Um, it could be a phone VM, it could be an Xbox VM, it could be both, um, and, and, you know, run it on whatever device you want. But I feel like supposedly the kernel is there. Yeah. Everything is, everything is there, right? Like this is, uh, a lack of execution. That's what it is. It's a lack of execution. And it's also a very, um, I don't know. I feel like at the very top, that has to be a mandate, right? That we want, because uh, the the Balmer letter, it said something about we need to be a what a devices and services company, and what I want to see is a letter that that where Balmer states that hey we need to be a a unified platform company, right? Where sure you want to be a device a software company, <laughs> yeah, right? Like you want to be a devices company that's great. Let me run all of your software on all of your devices, yeah. right? Like that's yeah. the that would be amazing. Um, so, so that's the Microsoft part of this. The the other I want to talk is... more about the 1020 too. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but it's like you can't you can't talk about the 1020 without mentioning that it runs Windows Phone. Yes, like that comes up so often, and it's unfortunate because can you imagine this running Android? Oh, it'd be awesome, right? Right, like, it... like just run the Gadongan experiment or whatever, and it's like, wow, can you can you imagine the context? Can you imagine Samsung in a context where? Nokia was making Windows. I mean, uh, was making Android devices. Yeah, and but you and I have had this discussion too, right? Would Nokia be able to survive as a company had they picked sure. Android instead of Microsoft? Right, like the Microsoft relationship came with a giant know. check. I don't know. Like clearly they needed restructuring. Clearly they needed to get rid of everything else. Yeah, 
you know, so that was the beneficial part, you know, like this huge overhead. I, I think now that they're sort of just the devices company, you know, like they're a parts assembler and the OS is handed to them and they do some things, you know, like they have a couple of platforms that are their own. Um, they're in a position where they could survive, but yes. the pre, like the old, the old Nokia obviously couldn't have. The Correct. new one operates under a model that lends itself entirely to, you know, we could run, we could just make this run Android. Right? Well, so what's really interesting about that is um, one. I much, I wonder how much of the the uh, R and D of these devices is kind of co-sponsored by Microsoft, right? And if that, there are any strings attached with that. Um, well, it's primarily Qualcomm. I mean, they're the platform. They do all this other stuff, really. I mean, like, even the camera, like, the line. So the interesting thing about the camera that I'd always wondered about, you know, like, the 808 has this big ISP uh, that's made by Broadcom. The the 909 or 1020 uh, basically has none of that, and it runs the ISP and all these oversampling and decimation things on uh, on Crate. You know, it runs it on 8960. Some of it on Qualcomm's ISP, some of it in uh, in just user land, which is pretty surprising and probably why you see the two gigs of RAM. So, you know that, that, and they said that they rewrote everything. Like they just they had to work with Qualcomm very closely to get access to you know, like all these low level pipes and go and change them around. So I would say that there's probably more of a relationship with you know the the SOC provider than there is. Microsoft, like Microsoft, probably works with Qualcomm to make sure their platform runs on it, mm-hmm. and then the OEMs take the BSP and go from there. So, I don't know. I'm just guessing. This is like a continual thing that I try to figure out is how this works. Yeah. Well, in that case, I mean, it seems like an enlightened Nokia would want to have a Skunk Works project where they have some folks within the company working on what would Android look like on their devices. Well, um, I'm wondering if it's contractually obligated. Like, if I would love to see that. You know, I mean, who wouldn't? But isn't that like didn't didn't Microsoft get in a lot of trouble for that kind of stuff in the past? Like, isn't that sure? Isn't sure, that the type I mean, of thing you can't put in writing anymore? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to know what the relationship exactly was. Yeah, you know what what the scope was of of the whole relationship. I so, guess is the right way of saying it. What else do you want to talk about with with ten twenty? The camera UI looked awesome. The camera UI is the best out there. You know, uh, just absolutely phenomenal. They did an excellent job. You have full manual control over basically everything from focus, um, white balance, ISO, exposure time, um, flash. They literally have every control I've ever wanted. They have the they have the ability to change flash between on, um, pre lighting like an auto focus, auto expose, um, on all the time. Obviously, white balance, all these different modes, manual focus you can just drag through every single setting which is a phenomenal i mean like that ui is fluid and perfect iso goes all the way up to like 4000 um exposure goes from like 1 over 60000 to 4 seconds i mean like 4 seconds is unheard of yeah i think the longest that the 808 ran was like 2 seconds um you know they have obviously the same like sensor crop modes and this oversampled 5 megapixel image that gets stored all the time or you can do the full res. Um, I think it's 38 and 34 megapixel for uh, 4, 3, and 16.9 aspect ratio crops. Um, it's f2.2 now, six element optical system, OIS, even better OIS. I mean, really, like the camera is just obviously to die for. Like, this is by far the best camera. And it's not, 
it's not that thick either when you play with it. Like I thought it was going to be really thick based on the the pictures that with that black circle. Yeah. But when you pick it up, it's like the black circle is barely there. So, you know, obviously other other people need to or probably already are copying the camera UI or you know like maybe they aren't. I don't know. I mean, it seems like it's very difficult to get people to listen to basic things. <laughs> but uh I mean, there it is. So like just copy that if you want to if you want to do the absolute best implementation and it's fluid, I don't, you know, like it's unfortunate because even though, even though Nokia has all these controls, the stock camera UI is still there inexplicably. Like it should just be gone, even though it isn't default. And in addition, the stock gallery is still there. So when you open up images um, in the gallery, you'll see like a link at the bottom and you tap that and that'll pop you into the, the pro shot camera, uh, which basically is also a gallery and lets you do the thing where you look at, you know, the full res version when you zoom in and the five megapixel oversampled one. So, you know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting to see this, you know, like we have lots of control, but it seems like they, they don't have control over necessarily everything. Yeah. And, um, you know, the rest of it is great too. Like they have, you know, the video shooting modes that are awesome, 1080p. The only thing I don't like is that it is fairly wide and, and it's, it's strange to see, the marketing buzz kick in and say like we have a really wide field of view because that's just it's not really a good thing when you see that that means like you've accommodated to make it as thin as possible um everybody sort of identifies that the iphone is sort of almost perfect at 35 millimeters um at 35 millimeter equivalent focal length so like to be at 25 and 27 i mean everybody's kind of around 28 except for apple um Although I think Galaxy S4 is, they tightened that way back up. I can't remember where it is, but I think it's almost in the 30s. It's it's a little bit weird because obviously you get more gains from the zoom thing if you start it out already tighter. Um, I don't know. Like it's it's an amazing device. I just I think it's very delayed. Unfortunately, that's the reality. Yeah. And uh, you know, it's I wish that there was I wish that there was ubiquity. You know, in terms of the device was on all the operators in the United States. Even though, like, we just can't have nice things like that. It shouldn't <laughs> surprise anybody uh, to see, you know, AT&T get the exclusive. But, you know, you still got to say it. I don't know. Like, I think it's an amazing camera. I'm going to carry it. I just still can't use Windows Phone. It's better than it, it was. Like, it keeps getting better. But every time I go to it, there are still apps that I can't use. I still want IM that's better. You know, I have, like, this list of things. And um, I know, like, a lot of people interpret that as, like, I hate Windows Phone, but uh, I don't. So, I don't know. That's that's the long and short of it. It's a very cool, very cool imaging device, you know. And uh, obviously, like, again, Nokia has just cemented their, their leadership yet again, you know. Like, yeah. There's a question about, you know, like, should another OEM do something like this? It's not a question of should they, because they obviously should. It's a question of can they. And... You know, most of them just can't. So that's really the the strength. And, you know, to their credit, they need to exercise everything they can about it and sort of get this halo reputation around it uh, into these other products. So we'll see. I think that's the 1020. (laughs) (laughs) So the the only other company to kind of come really close, um, obviously not to the 1020, um, but, you know, to to previous Nokia designs was uh, HTC. And then today they announced the kind of often leaked mini version of the one. Yeah, it's not really a secret, is it? No. <laughs> <laughs> or it wasn't. So, um, yeah, I mean, the mini is uh, is an interesting device. 
It's obviously like a smaller HTC One, um, which is you could kind of leave it at that, except for the fact that you know it's got different specifications. It's it's not you know I think everybody really wanted like this flagship device that's smaller. Yes, like the One S. I'm really sad to say, but it's it's just not the One Mini, and you know. Part of that is just because when you're trying to make a mid-range device that's smaller, you want to have a lower cost. And, you know, is there a world where the device is just a smaller display but the same internals and the same cost about? And I, I don't really know. I think there are a lot of vocal opinions that want that, but, you know, maybe the market isn't there. Yeah, see, I think so, that's where we eventually get, right? When I, I keep referring to it as, you know, when uh, when smartphones, high-end smartphones have their Ultrabook moment. And people start focusing more on form factor. Um, and, and I think we're headed towards that, but we're not there yet. Well, iPhone is kind of doing that, I guess you could say. Yeah, they I don't started, know about the other platforms, though. They, they started there, right? And I think that's what um, kind of caught Apple off guard, right? Because I, I look at what they did in the phone space, and it's like they looked at how their notebooks evolved, and then they went immediately to the MacBook Air, and they said, okay, this is, this is the solution. We, we already did it. Um, but the market wasn't I'm ready for that. I'm talking more about making a, a smaller iPhone. Yeah, okay, I understand what you're saying. You know, you're... Because it was always like this, it was patently stupid to have your previous gen product become the lower end one. And yeah. anybody that suggested that, that was a good idea was just, you know, I don't know, sandbagging. And, uh, you know, so obviously now, now that things are more competitive in the middle, that makes a lot more sense rather than selling you a year old or two year old phone to get this special thing yeah well not only that but like the manufacturing costs of what you were selling last year at the high end might not scale down well enough yeah exactly yeah totally and you know like even the mini is not the same exact construction as the one like it's it seems to be different i haven't held the thing i've only seen pictures but um it is notable that there is there is different plastic lip you know it's still aluminum but it's different plastic uh 4.3 inch 720p display um, Snapdragon 400, which basically means MSM 8930 at 1.4 gigahertz. This is the the Crate 200 version, not the Crate 300 version. That's unfortunate. Um, yeah, it is. I don't know why that keeps happening. Like it's frustrating to me. Yeah. Uh, but especially because Samsung is shipping an 8930 AA or AB or whatever it is this week with the uh, Crate 300 at uh, higher clocks. You know, and yeah. obviously at higher. Um, you know, better IPC too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I don't know, be that as it may, like here it is. And, uh, you know, it's going to be cool. It's got, it's, it's got the, the camera, the four megapixel ultra pixel camera with two micron pixels. It doesn't have OIS though. So that's a little, you know, like it seems like things had to make the cut. It seems this time around, like the one S was a flagship that was smaller. Um, this time around it's like, well, you know, this isn't a flag- flagship anymore. Yeah, it's this is—it's a cost it's a mid-range one. phone. Yeah, yeah. So you know, like I know that's going to be the thing a lot of people have issues with, and I don't know. We'll see how it plays out. I, I want to try it. I haven't tried it. Yeah, which is kind of unfortunate, but you know, we'll see. Um, the other bit of HTC news is you got to play with the four two two update for the one. Yeah, a couple. Uh, I don't. Couple, it seems like a long time ago, but. I think it was like a couple of weeks ago I wrote about it. Yeah, we got the 4.2.2 update, uh, which brings, I believe, six new uh, highlights reel themes. Um, obviously, 4.2.2, AI, uh, auto exposure and autofocus lock, 
to the camera, a bunch of little tweaks, you know, obviously like the setting shortcut thing that flips over. Um, by the way, all of this is present on the, the one mini, like it's launching with that newer platform. Uh, you know, just a lot of small refinements and bug fixes, like the pebble, uh, accessibility bug thing. Like if you had the, if you had the pebble and you turned accessibility on, then any taps on the lock screen would unlock the phone, which didn't make sense. So those things are fixed, you know, just like a lot of small improvements and, um, you know, those don't necessarily like make or break the phone, but it's, it's good to see it getting updates and, you know, obviously the future devices will launch with at least that. Uh, and then we're, we're obviously going to have the next version of Android pretty shortly here. So like you essentially get like a month where the phone is running the latest and greatest. And then um, we're already on to something else. But I mean, that's how these things work. It's still Jelly Bean, um, supposedly. So I don't think I missed anything with the, uh, the 4.2.2 HTC One thing. Uh there's not a whole lot that was like big. It was just like a a, ni- a lot of nice little things. Oh, I almost forgot. Yeah, the mini, the menu bar got changed around. You know, like you can re- you can repurpose the home button to do menu in case you still have apps that are not updated. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is kind of cool. Um, and then yeah, on, it definitely needed that. On the Samsung side of the fence, you've been playing around with like a lot of battery charging stuff on the Galaxy S4, right? Yeah, that's why well, I ordered this. I saw this battery on Reddit that was like uh, 7,500 milliamp hours, I believe. And yeah, it's 7,500 milliamp hours, uh, 3.8 volts. So, I mean, that's a huge number of watt hours. Um, <laughs> it's like a laptop. Yeah, it's like 28 watt hours or something. So it's it's like the world's largest battery ever for a phone. And, you know, like everybody's very vocal about how they want replaceable batteries. So I expect this to be a bestseller ever. <laughs> <laughs> um, because like the phone is now just really thick and really huge, but it can supposedly last like somebody on YouTube had a video of them with it going like three days. Oh wow. You know, they showed the about menu with the battery thing Yeah, and it was like just going on like three and a half days. So, um, that's kind of cool. And, but it's going to take longer to charge too. So, I mean, there are these trade-offs and, um, Anyways, I'm running it through our battery life test just for fun. It's it wasn't that expensive. It was like forty bucks, which is pretty cheap for a huge battery. Who makes it? Uh, this company called Zero Lemon. Zero Lemon Galaxy S4 7500 milliamp hour extended battery, and it has like this case thing. Basically, like the the case kind of like snaps around the whole device. Like this battery is so big that they can't really fit a door on it. It's just is like this thing that like grabs the edge. Okay, so uh-huh. like the battery protrudes from the device, and then you have this new case. Yeah, significantly. It looks to me like they just took two cells. Like you have one cell that's the size of the normal Galaxy S4 battery, and then you have another cell that's sort of glued on top of it that's just huge. Like it's physically gigantic. Like it takes up the whole length of the device practically up to the camera as far down as it can go. It is big, and... <laughs> Almost a little ridiculous, but, you know, I guess, you know, like, there are people out there who need the three days, and, you know, admittedly, like, I think it's better than putting a Mophie on the Galaxy S4, you know, why wouldn't you? Uh, of course, the other the other thing is, like, you just get a different battery, you know, like, of the same size, and then off, not have to do different things. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's that. I'm running it through the tests. We'll see how it does. It's been going all day so far. Um <laughs> 
I don't think it'll make it through like more than 12 hours on our test, but of course that's just one data point. That doesn't mean you won't get multiple days of actual use. Yeah, and our test tends to be... It's definitely not the lightest thing you can do, but it's not the heaviest either. Yeah, it's not. Like, somebody was saying that they were killing their phone in an hour. That's not possible. That's just impossible. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, I've sit here, I sat here running Epic Citadel, you know, on Benchmark, which basically just is 100% everything. And the phones get ridiculously hot, and it's not dead in an hour. <laughs> so, I don't know. If you can kill your phone in an hour, I'd love to know what you're doing, because, like, that is insane. So, um yeah, <laughs> there's no way to do it. Like even the even the iPhone on the base station emulator with the power cranked to maximum, like because you can you can drag the transmit power to just levels that you know basically are within spec, but the network won't ever request. Yeah, and the phone like gets thermonuclear and stuff, and even that was in an hour. So, <laughs> uh, um, that's like that's like that's like watts. Like we're talking like just ridiculous numbers of watts. Yeah. I guess maybe if you're doing that plus Citadel plus full brightness display, but then you run into like a, a skin temperature issue first. Probably, yeah. It's just gonna it's just gonna turn off. Like yeah. the iPhone will just do that thing where it's like it's too hot. You need to cool down before you can use it. <laughs> it goes you know, into timeout. It happens all the time here. Yeah, where it's hot, you know, you just go outside and use it in the sunlight. So, but everything does that. So I'm used to it. Uh, <laughs> um, and then you also played around with the Samsung's like official wireless charging kit for the galaxy s4 that's right yeah i got the the wireless charging pad the chi wireless charging pad uh which works pretty well there is i mean their charging pad their back for the galaxy s4 is like 40 bucks uh there's like a cheaper sticker thing on uh, amazon that sort of like attaches over the battery and like just makes its way into those pogo pins and that i hear works um interestingly enough you know i don't know if it's the best thing in the world but you know that's an alternative and people commented in the review and noted that and i've i've seen it myself i've never tried it but uh that's one alternative the real cool thing is the the power you know like charger thing the pad which is chi uh it runs like 50 dollars. it plugs into the two amp charger uh there is overhead this time though because they're already going at two amps and the power supply to the the wireless charging pad is only two amps so there's overhead and it ends up being like 75% efficiency around there. Uh, so it slows down a little bit. Like, I think it was like 30% longer charging, which makes sense. Yeah. And uh, so the solution you know, there is they need, factor. they need to be able to power the, the charger itself with more current. Yeah. They need another, another charger for that. Yeah. Uh, but at least they do things right. You know, like it shows the wireless charging thing. It it does detach after a while. You know, it's like I've seen some implementations that are kind of wrong. So, you know, to their credit, it works. There's not a whole lot to say about it other than, you know, like we got to run tests on it and uh, take a look. And it, it works. It adds thickness. You know, you have to decide between do you want, uh, you know, do you want the normal battery back? Do you want the S-View flip case thing? Or do you want Qi? And, you know, so I have all these battery you know, like I have all these backs now, all these battery covers, uh, for the galaxy S four, just all over the place. And, uh, which do you like the best? I kind of like the stock one. I just go with the stock one, not the S view cover thing. You know, the S view cover thing is great, but it also adds thickness. Like yeah. it feels thicker and it's only black. And the, because I like using the Google play edition S four, that one's white. So it kind of looks a little bit weird, like an <laughs> Oreo. 
<laughs> uh, so I've just been using the stock white one that doesn't have. I don't know. It it depends. Like I don't know. It's such a weird thing to have like a, a taste preference over. Yeah. But uh, you know, I'm I'm assuming there's a market somewhere for you know, like cool wireless charging is catching on slowly. Yes. It's starting to show up in more and more places. And it's funny because Samsung's like kind of a member of all these alliances, but they're shipping Qi, so Yeah, know, we see a lot of all that. you need to all you need to all you need to know is that, you know, like there's really just one that has any market adoption. <laughs> um on my side of the fence, I finally published the second part of our ARM diaries where I looked at Cortex A twelve. Um so Cortex A twelve was like the long-awaited ARM microprocessor IP license that we'd heard about for a while, like something between A9 and A15. Um, And we knew something was coming, but it just kept not happening. And then, you know, Qualcomm has just been on a roll ever since 28 nanometer hit with all their crate derivatives. Um, But this is effectively something uh, between A9 and and A15. Uh, If you look at ARM's roadmap, they effectively have three vectors today. Um, that they sell into phones and tablets, right? You have the A15 vector, you have the A9 vector, and then you have like the A5, A7 vector below it. So the A12 is the logical successor to the A9. Um, the A15 was not. It's it's designed to go higher end and higher performance. Um, and then architecturally, the A12 looks a lot like an A9, but just bigger and better. So if you look at how the Cortex A9 has improved in terms of performance over the years, um, if you look at the R4 edition, which will ship with Tegra 4i, you'll get some like small IPC tweaks as well as like a huge frequency tweak. But for the most part, frequency scaling is what we've seen um, from, from the Cortex-A9 core. Cortex-A12 uh, does a lot more in terms of IPC. Um, ARM is claiming something like 40% increase in IPC at the same frequency uh, and less than a 40% area impact in order to get that. But basically what they're saying is, hey, look, we're spending more die area to get a more efficient scaling of performance. Um, it's a very interesting part. Like it's uh, it's likely going to be very good when it gets here. And that's ultimately the problem that, you know, it's the, the IP was just finished, you know, within the past couple of weeks. Uh, like when I was at ARM uh, in, in June, they said by the end of this week, that's when that's when licensees will get access to it. So Samsung and, you know, whoever has uh, a license to ARM's Cortex-A12 or their, you know, big processor IP libraries, they just got access to it. So you got to figure about a year or so for the SOCs to kind of be done based around it. Um, And then that has to go and get integrated into a device. So realistically, we're looking at like end of next year or beginning (laughs) of 2015, um, which at first, like I thought, Hey, this is just going to be kind of dead in the water. Like no one's going to care. But then I started looking at it and saying, well, no, that's not necessarily true. Right. Because you see, you still see devices based on Cortex A9 shipping and launching today, right? Like galaxy S, um, the galaxy tab three, 8.0, for example, that's another Cortex A9 derived device. Um, and all the galaxy cameras. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> there's still stuff that uses A9, and what becomes really interesting about A12 is it likely will offer a lower cost alternative to, you know, a lot of these OEMs versus buying like a Qualcomm SOC, right? Because Qualcomm is often viewed as in, in many of the segments it competes in as kind of a, a premium provider of silicon. Um, but you look at like the media techs of the world and now they can get kind of a, a Crate 300 competitor, but directly from right. ARM. 
right? So I, I think it it likely won't be too little too late, um, but it'll it'll be more more along the the value or kind of mainstream line of products when it hits. Um, but architecturally, it looks really good. Like it fixes a lot of the things that are wrong with Cortex A9, right? So you double the number of uh, load store paths. Um, you go to just independent into issue queues for memory ops, floating point neon ops, and integer ops, right? Whereas before you had one big funnel that all of the instructions went through um, before they were issued. Now you've got these discrete queues, um, each of which is larger than that kind of one big funnel you used to have. Uh, the big thing about Cortex A9, which was kind of uh, always hilarious, is that it was out of order, but really only with integer operations. Um, all memory and all floating point neon operations were in order. So Cortex A12 changes that. Now all floating point neon and integer are out of order. Most memory ops um, are out of order, although there are still some limitations there. Um, so that's a big deal. Uh, what else? The other cool thing was apparently while ARM is designing this thing, they underestimated its performance level. So they got the first simulation results back and they were like, oh crap, our branch predictor sucks. Like it can't sustain the rest of the machine. So huh. like three months ago, they realized this and they went around and started asking everyone like who had a suitable branch predictor that they could use in the design. And they ended up going to the Cortex A53 team. Um, so this is the 64-bit A7 successor. And they had a suitable branch predictor. So uh, there was like some bitterness between the teams there or something because that, that branch predictor was supposed to debut in the A53, but it'll debut in the, uh, the A12 first. That's funny. <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of cool. Um, A12 is something I'm really excited about. Actually, a lot of ARM's next-generation architectures um, are really cool. Uh, so one thing I'm going to talk about uh, likely in the next piece is the move to 64-bit ARM. And kind of like what we had when we moved to 64-bit with x86, like uh, uh, ARM used 64-bit as a, a you know kind of a a time to clean up a bit of the instruction set architecture. Right. But unlike when we made that move, you know, when, when people moved to x86-64, no one ever dared bring up the idea of, hey, what if we had certain chips that didn't even have the 32-bit side, right? What if certain, certain right. ones only operated in 64? Because that would just be like suicide. But in the ARM space, that's not necessarily all that unfeasible, right? Like it's a, these are all platforms yeah, that totally. run in like controlled app stores, you know, Apple could one day say, hey, look, everything is now 64-bit only, flip a switch, and yeah, they, they're actually like performance implications for that. So that's that's something that's really cool that I've been looking at. And obviously that has big implication, uh, implications on the server side as well. Um, but that's kind of neat. So I'm working on that and then uh, also doing a deep dive on Cortex-A53, which is um, just a really, really neat little architecture. Um, you know, one of the, the questions that I posed... Uh, I guess when we first started talking about like the ARM diary stuff, I guess uh, two or so podcasts ago, was this idea that like why does ARM need so many microprocessor architectures to cover, you know, their market versus Intel's two? And sure. I'm I'm really believing in this whole you know that this religious ARM versus Intel war stuff actually doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? They are the two markets will overlap a bit, but they're largely divergent. Uh, at least today. Now, maybe more of them converge over time or what have you. But uh, if you look at what's happening to ARM's roadmap, a lot of what they're doing makes a ton of sense, right? So if you look at the Cortex-A15 vector, 
that thing just gets faster and more power hungry and and more performance year over year over year. And there was this great graph that they shared in in you'll see it in the A12 piece that I just posted, uh, where they just show how you know that that performance curve per core is expected to go over the next few process nodes. Um, right. And there's this like huge jump when you get to 10 nanometer, and it just shows that like that lineage is going to get increasingly less suitable for phone usage, right? We already see almost no one shipping A15 phones today. ARM says that'll change, but, you know, it, it's clear that that's not the ideal target, right? And and I feel like that's going to even get uh, less desirable for more of the phones going forward. And then you have, well, hey, look, you've got this A12, A9 lineage, right, that's going forward. And eventually they'll likely do an A55 or something, a 64-bit version. Yeah. But... As they kind of move that line upwards, yeah, you're not going to get into the the kind of power issues that you have in the A15 lineage, but you start ballooning die area, right? They're talking about 40% increase, you know, no more than a 40% increase in die area compared to A9. Well, the people who are like counting pennies inside their bomb, that's kind of a huge increase in die area. And right. this is where like arms flexibility really comes into play because if if that if a customer is bothered by that, well then they have this other line of microprocessors that's also getting faster, but that's also very very area optimized down below with the A5, A7 and A53. So it's a very um I don't know, it's all very like democratic and very uh uh customer focused approach to this, right? Which is just really unusual in the microprocessor space. Um I don't know if it'll last like this forever. Because um, there's there's always the uh, what I view as the Dell problem, right? If you always listen to your customers, sometimes <laughs> you end up building things that aren't very good, and right, I mean that's what happens. Uh, I, I remember that's the pretty the, funny, but it's true. Like yeah. I remember um, when I reviewed, but they they did need like a crate or a Swift equivalent. Like don't you even think this is kind of late. And it's funny, it it isn't even um, it's not 64 bit. It's not in that that same architecture at all. Yeah, it's not 64 bit. Um, but it is ISA compatible with A15 and A7. It's 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 off yeah. by a year, right? But I think from their perspective, does 64-bit matter in phones in 2015? And probably not at the high end, I guess. Yeah, and again, like so, if you but look at what at, point does it make more sense to ship like four A12s versus this big little thing? Well, so the big little I really feel is a way of dealing with the fact that you have. Um, you have these really, really high-performance cores. And the one thing I didn't understand, you know, ARM keeps saying that, hey, you could build a low-power A15. But it, it finally clicked for me when I was running the A12 piece. No one who licenses a giant core is ever going to back off on performance. Other than Apple, everyone's going to be like, well, yeah, I'm just going to run this as fast as I possibly can because I'm spending the die area on it, sure. right? Um, so I feel like that's the reason we don't get really low-power A15 implementations, at least not yet. Maybe someone will come around and say, hey, look, I don't mind spending the die area for a more performance-efficient part. But Big Little kind of deals with that, right? It's a solution for someone who is going to spend the die area, wants that ultimate performance, but still wants to be able to get into a phone. And I think that's their only solution. What do I want? Yeah, until Big Little becomes something that's truly more integrated, right? Where you have like one big unified cache that all of the cores yeah, talk to. That's what it needs to be. Right? Like and that's why it's always felt like kind of like a hack at the end of the day. Yeah, and it, and part of that is because you have this business model where your customers are going to want to dream up these solutions. Right? Sure. Like this is this would never fly in the X86 space because Intel and AMD would have been like, "No, this is 
this is not the right way to do it. If we believe in this, then we'll build you apart and, and what have you. But this is where the Dell problem comes in, right? What Dell will always ask for you know, what it thinks its customers want, which won't necessarily always be the right solution. Right, I remember the time when I reviewed like Dell's all-in-one, and the equivalent iMac at the time had a better GPU in it, and I was like, "This is ridiculous!" Like it's uh, Apple went dual-core CPU, but a better GPU, and Dell went quad-core CPU and a worse GPU, and I said, "This is uh, this is what you get when you listen, you know, only listen to your customers." <laughs> The and, customer is not always right, it turns out. Yeah, that's I what mean, you're saying. It, it can happen, right? Because that, that's... It can, <laughs> but it can happen that they are right sometimes, or it can happen that they are wrong sometimes. Both, right? Both. Like, <laughs> so I'm really curious. Like, I think um, this non-homogenous you know, compute cluster makes sense, but then you kind of really do want a tighter coupling between your cores. And that brings up an interesting question in terms of how this is licensed. Right? Where do you, you combo know, deals? Combo deals, or does ARM have to get more specific and aggressive with its customers or its licensees saying that, look, this has to be licensed in this configuration because this is the right one? Right? Versus, yeah, go ahead and do whatever you want sure. to do. Um, I don't know. Huh. Like, that's a, that's a longer term discussion about ARM, but it's, it's something that, and I don't necessarily know that they have to do that to be successful, but I think it definitely avoids some of the embarrassment that we've seen, at least with the initial Big Little. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I mean, that's I feel like that's just a relationship issue. You know, like if you're if you're if your number one implementer is doing things wrong, um why wouldn't you step in and fix it or maybe they didn't have visibility into it or I mean there are all these questions about Arm is why also is that like broken way smaller of a company, right? Yeah, sure. Like that's the that is the surprising thing in all of this is just how small of a company Arm is. Um, I mean, their licensees are way bigger and make a ton more money than they do. Sure, sure. Right? I think what Samsung's revenue per quarter is almost, what, an order of magnitude higher than ARM's? Like, it's a... It's, yeah, but does that include other things is always the... It does, right? It definitely does. Um, but it's still, I mean, it's the resources of the company, right? Like, it's... At some point, you get access to it. Um, I, I don't know. It's just... It's a very unique setup that we've never had before, right? We've had fabulous semiconductors before that we've worked with, and I don't know, that's a very understood variable. But this current setup of, you know, you have an IP provider, you have someone that assembles the IP, and then you have a fab, you know, a foundry that, that builds that, and then that goes to a parts assembler that, you know, builds it into a phone. Uh, it's just a lot more distributed than we're used to. And it's neat. Like, it promotes competition for sure. Uh, I just don't know how this story ends, right? Like, it's just, it's very different from anything we've covered before. Right. Um, but it's really exciting. Like, it's, it's covering the ARM portfolio is, I don't know. It's fun to write about. It's a lot of fun to write about. And you get they to do, see. They do have a lot of stuff that's always changing all the time. They do. Um, yeah, they definitely do. And they have all of these, you could literally get a part for almost anything you want, right? Like we're only yeah, covering course. a very small You're only subset. covering A series. Exactly. Not M or R. <laughs> exactly. Um, which is also kind of frustrating because like certain things that you would assume would be non-negotiable are negotiable if you look at the broader spectrum, right? Like neon is not present everywhere, um, which is, I guess that's the current debate as to does that make the ARM ecosystem more or less fragmented compared to, you know, what we've had elsewhere? 
Right. I I don't know. I think I see more neon. I, you said that there was more neon. I I think. Well, let me rephrase this. More SOCs include neon, but neon is used less in Android now. Interesting. Um, so, but neon. as as always, that's my opinion. I could. I would love to see like an instruction mix breakdown, but again, no, no, I, I can't ever see that. <laughs> well, so neon, um, at least what ARM says is when Cortex A9 was designed, neon usage was very minimal. Um, and when they went to start on Cortex A12, because I mean, you got to remember, Cortex A9 was designed like right around the time of the original iPhone launch, and you look at how the market has changed since then. It's no surprise that. Floating point wasn't as important. Memory performance wasn't as important back then. Like though, I mean, we were running really, really baby apps back then compared to what's going on now. Um, but you look at it now, and when they were designing Cortex A12, Neon was a major focus, which is why it's out of order. It's fully out of order, um, and it's all dual. It's also a dual issue, right? So it was single issue yeah. um, Neon and floating point on A9, but now it's dual issue on A12. Um, so it's, there must be a use case for it somewhere. I mean, they know better than I do, but a lot of the it used to be primarily like Skia and a lot of the rendering libraries that were yes. all using Neon, and now that's all GPU. Like it's it doesn't touch CPU at all anymore. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I I've heard that it's a very big deal, but it's you're right. No one is. Uh, uh, I haven't seen the slide that shows the breakdown, but I guess that's something we should be asking for more of now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean. I've asked, but then the question, they just are like, well, we don't really know, you know, or like maybe some engineer knows, but, you know, they're yeah, not Yeah, that's, show that's me, an arm question. <laughs> I, I should email them about that because obviously they have to have this data since they, this was like a, hope so. a driving yeah. point for A12. Um, and Neon isn't optional on A12. Um, it's apparently, it is optional on A5 and A7. It is not optional on A15 for most of the parts that we'd run into, although there are some embedded options where you can get an optional Neon. Um, it's just ARM gets used in so many weird places that you can't kind of force... You yeah, because otherwise you're just wasting area. Exactly. So that's kind of neat. Um, that's it. For... I, like, I like A12. I'd love to see a four-core SOC with it in there and no big little. Yeah, I think, it, does. I think it would be really cool. Um it's targeted at 28 nanometer, which is interesting depending on the time frame, right? Because if we're talking late 2014, early 2015, we should hopefully be into, you know, 20 nanometer and below. So, uh, but maybe that gets reserved for like the really, really high end and then yeah. the A12 generation lags behind. Um, but I, 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 think think it, so. I think it should be a very potent, more affordable alternative to some of the high end stuff that'll be out at that point. Right. It looks pretty cool. Mm -hmm. I was reading through it. No, I like it. I'm excited. Um, what's next on your list of things to do? Um, well, my other trip was to Aptina and uh, covering their Clarity Plus uh, color filter array, um, which is kind of cool. So that was that was like Monday. Yeah, now it's... Uh, so um, I wrote that up. Basically, like, uh, you know, so low light performance is a big deal. Uh and in mobile devices pixels are getting smaller you know we sort of marched all the way down to 1.1 microns and 0.9 microns is coming next uh, and there's a big trade-off in sensitivity where basically you lose even more low light performance as you march down the scale and as a result everybody's kind of looking for ways to solve that problem but still keep the shrinking going and Aptina believes they have a solution with uh 
a clear filter array uh, where they use instead of green pixels in the buyer subpixel, I mean, I mean buyer two by two RGB filter, they use uh, clear pixels. So in the place of the green ones, you have like clear pixels. And so this is a subtractive method that other people have tried before, and you know, using a white subpixel has been tried before. Like Sony tried and failed, and then pulled it all at the last minute um, with Exmor RS. Uh, so like it's sort of been like the road to this has been paved with disaster, but they, <laughs> they firmly believe that they've got it working this time because they've sort of moved to a, a unique, um, you know, like a, a nice balanced two by two unit cell, uh, that looks a lot like buyer so they can leverage a lot of the existing, you know, image science because after they can recover the, the green pixels and those white and the, so basically what they do is they use subtractive method to recover the green co- channel from these two white channels. And then, um, you know, traditionally that introduces a lot of noise, but they also keep the luminance channel around and then feed that into their pipeline. And magic happens and they're able to suppress all the extra noise and also get gains. So they say they have a 3 to 4 dB improvement in SNR. And um, you're probably wondering, well, what happens to dynamic range? Because you have these white pixels that are going to saturate. And um, I'm told that they only lose 0.2 dB, which is almost nothing. Uh, because you have, you have like 38 dB in a smartphone, they lose 0.2. Uh, and you get a doubling of your sensitivity, again, with the 3 to 4 dB SNR increase. So, I mean, that's, that's a pretty big deal. Uh, and that's it's kind of cool to see, you know, alongside like this 1.1. They showed off a 1.1 micron sensor of theirs without this and then with this. And, you know, the difference was huge with the same exposure. Obviously, the question is like, will the OEM run the same long exposure? Probably not. They'll just make, you know, make it shorter. So, I mean, this gets traded off in different ways, but I mean, it's there. Uh, then you have the question of ISP because this is different and it's not buyer. And like every SOC in the entire world uses buyer. Uh, what happens and uh, they told me that they're porting they've already had a lot of success porting the image pipeline to the current SOCs and you know like because some of these have things baked into hardware of course uh, some of those pipeline stages get put into software and so it's not really an ideal implementation at present so they also have an option to use their own ISP but apparently in the future future products, uh, future SOCs, they've had a lot of visibility into getting these stages built in, and they're going to do it. So at least the three major players, and I'll let you guess who those are. And um, <laughs> yeah, which is kind of cool. I mean, uh, we've never really had a relationship like that with any of the CMOS providers. Like, you know, of the numbers, there's Sony, Omnivision, uh, Samsung, and Aptina. Those are the sort of big ones. And um I guess Aptina has cross-licensed almost all of its patents with Sony, too, which is kind of cool. So that kind of raises the question about, you know, like, will Sony go back to this? But I, I think Sony got really burned with, uh, you know, their RGBW attempt, uh, which famously got pulled at the last second. Uh, I don't know if you remember that, but it was, like, you know, it was really hyped, and they are going to have, like, this H- HDR thing, and then they had this little press release in September of 2012 that was like, oops, uh, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> And, you know, there there are a lot of trade-offs with, like, some of these other arrays. You know, it's funny that, you know, buyer has been along, around as long as it has because it's so simple. It's just RGGB. And really, it's sort of like the best trade-off. It's easy to implement. You have a lot of green, which is where the spectral response of the eye is highest. Um, 
and again, the 20 years of like optimization into that pipeline. So the question is, you know, like, is this close enough, but still different enough to make that, to make it really, you know, worth going to. And I think they, they strongly believe that they do. And it's something different. Um, so that's pretty cool. You know, I don't know. We'll see it hopefully in something. Yeah, I was told that it was already getting uh, a lot of attention. You know, and the question is when you go to 0.9 microns, what do you do to get the sensitivity back? Like already 1.1 microns, it's sort of gone. Yeah, 0.9, like I thought that was even, you didn't even think anyone would go there, did you? um, I was kind of surprised. You know, like in theory, you can go all the way to 0.7, right? Like you can go to one wave. Yeah. Uh, And there are, you know, there are like one and a half, two waves, like basically one and a half. Um, that's starting to move really far down there. You know, the question is like, is it worth it? What are the, what are the improvements? You know, 1.3 waves is already very small, you know, from their perspective, you can do things where you take the Nokia approach and like oversample. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It just, it just depends. I, I don't think that there's, it's really worth it, but I mean, the industry is going to go there. And see what happens. Let's say anybody's prerogative to use the stuff. Yes. You know, or stay where they are. You know, even the the 1020 is 1.1 micron pixels BSI. Um, the 808 was 1.4 FSI. So from their perspective, they sort of kept things the same. They traded this off. Uh, but everybody else is getting smaller. You know, 3dB is a big, big number. Like, we're talking normally, like, 10% is a big number. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. I want to see it in a in a, a real device. Like they, they showed us the sensor working, which is cool. I want to see the one to one images. You know, they kept color representation the same. Uh, there's a lot of challenges with doing these things. You know, it's sort of a a big deal. Has been trying to change the color filter array for the longest time, and it's like everybody has something that they want to try, and it doesn't really succeed. And that's been the story for like the last you know decade, basically. Like you don't even need to take my word for it you can just go on wikipedia and look at like all these different things that people have tried like even i think fujifilm has that thing that's rotated you know it's like 45 degrees yeah um it always astounds me how slow optics moves compared to everything else um and you're always like telling me about how it's just all this stuff was so well understood at such an early point in time that it's there's uh it's There's not a lot of stuff to do Yeah, yeah exactly Um, You know, and this has been around for like 20 years. So, you know, the question is why change it? Yeah. It's just, you have the rest of this already sort of well understood because it's it's just physics and there's not, you know, like the physics is understood. So what are you going to do? That's fundamentally different. Like you can, you have all the pieces, like the puzzle pieces, we're not getting any new ones. So you can sort of shuffle them around and that's the best you can do. Yeah. Right. So it's just it flies in the face of what I think everyone expects in this industry, which is that anything is possible. Like anything we've seen in Star Trek, just should be able to happen. Um, and then it's always so sobering whenever I talk to you about optics because you're like, yeah, that's not there's there's a finite limit, and that's it. Yeah, like you're not getting well, anything. Yeah, this is especially the case with like cameras. You know, there's just no getting around the physics. Yeah, and people want to go to like an array system, which is kind of cool because that's the only way to really get thinner is just a lot of small things. So, um, I don't know. We'll see that happen in the future. I was, it's kind of exciting just to go and see this stuff. You know, I've never really had a dialogue with any of the, um, any of the CMOS vendors. And of course now we have sort of an in there, which is cool. Yeah. And, uh, so that's, that's the other thing. I don't, 
I don't remember what else I had to talk about. Well, the next thing on your list is you're going to fly out to Google to have breakfast with Sundar. And yeah, <laughs> and they're going to email him right now and be like, hey, what are we having? Yeah. What's, Do we have it? eggs Benedict? <laughs> I love eggs Benedict. Eggs Benedict is quality. So, yeah, you have uh, <laughs> breakfast with Sundar and, and he's going to tell you all about the next version of Android. Um, and I'm guessing hopefully that'll be. Yeah. Otherwise, it'll just be like discussing, I don't know, watering lawn techniques or something. Um, so I'm, I'm guessing that'll be a major topic for the next podcast. Um, so I want to thank you all for listening. We will be back post breakfast with Sundar and, uh, I'm going to try and get another, uh, another part of the arm diaries out by then as well. So thank you all for listening and thank you for reading the site.